will just uh, a word of thanks for the specialness of this time always. You know, I, I, I think Mark and I could honestly say that we would just as soon preach here as any big conference in the world or any anywhere. Because <clears throat> size doesn't matter. It quality matters and spiritual mindedness and seriousness and hunger for the word of God. So thank you for the hospitality, for the wonderful food and the love and the kindness. <clears throat> you know, Russell couldn't stop talking about Conrad Merle and he won't ever till he sees Conrad in heaven. Then Conrad may wag his finger at you. I don't know if they know what's going on down here, but um, you know, Conrad Merle was like a, a giant magnet and hundreds and ultimately thousands were pulled in through the fragrance of his life, the power of his ministry, his kindness, <coughs> his wisdom, <coughs> and, um, and he connected a bunch of us. A lot of us here wouldn't, I don't guess any of us, probably, maybe we would, but many of us wouldn't even know each other were, were not for Conrad Merle. And he certainly connected Russell and Mark and Becky and Linda and I, but thousands he connected. So here's an offer, a once-in-a-lifetime offer. Are your ears perked up? If you don't have the biography on the life of Conrad Merle and you want it, see me today, give me your address, and we'll send you one as a gift. And if you like it, well, even if you don't like it, tell friends they can order it from us at a good discounted price, okay? So give us your address today, and um, we'll go home with it, and then we'll send you one. And one of the beauties of that book, maybe the biggest beauty is, at the end of the book, there's a big section on Conrad's unpublished writings. At least most today wouldn't have seen them. And so that's at the end of the book. So <clears throat> this morning in my morning readings, I came to Luke 11, and I read another forgotten Beatitude. Don't turn to Luke 11. You can go ahead and turn to Matthew 5. But I read another forgotten beatitude in Luke 11. And it certainly applies this morning. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's a good one. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it or obey it. So may the Lord cause us to have grace to do that very thing. Matthew 5, we will read verses 5 and 6. Matthew 5, 5 and 6. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they 
shall be filled. Father, we come to this time once again as we open the book of God. We want to hear the voice of God by the Holy Spirit. We want to hear the voice and we want to know the presence of our good shepherd. So grant us your presence and your mercies and speak to our hearts and change us this day. In the name and for the honor of Jesus Christ, amen. So Jesus here in the progression of these Beatitudes, he's He's building his kingdom argument. He's building line upon line, precept on precept of spiritual realities. And if you want to think about it this way, the gospel brings into every believer, when they believe it, suddenly a revolution begins of realities coming in, spiritual light and understanding and different attitude changes and different appetites and desires and we're changed within and then everything begins to change right so in a sense the beatitudes are the gospel changing us and the holy spirit is pouring into us as a new babe in christ and then as a young christian and then as you grow these Beatitudes are gospel realities being built in us as the Holy Spirit changes us. And these realities are in every believer that's ever lived. Now let, let me pause and just say something that's really important. There's too much of a, a, a disconnection made in one way between the Old and the New Testament in this sense. So let's be clear about this. The spiritual realities of the Beatitudes, which could be called the fruits of the Spirit, didn't start with Matthew's Gospel. They didn't start in the time Jesus comes. They started in the life and soul of every Old Testament saint who's ever lived. These realities, to some degree, were in every believer in the Old Covenant. Righteous Abel worshipped God with the blood offering. Noah moved with godly fear and built an ark to the saving of his house. Holy Enoch walked with God for 300 years and God took him and he was never seen again. Faithful Abraham believed God and went out not knowing where he was going. And Jesus said of Abraham in John's Gospel, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced he, and he saw it and rejoiced. Abraham saw spiritually the days of Messiah with such clarity to some extent, he rejoiced in it. Abigail, Sarah, Rahab, Mary, all women of faith, even the thief on the cross, think about this. If he had lived, he would have evidenced a changed life. 
He would have been in the upper room in Acts 1, I believe. He would have been at the day of Pentecost. He would have been in the Jerusalem church because the grace of God had transformed him though he never got to live, right? Except he was the first one in paradise with Jesus. So the kingdom realities have always been within the saints of all the ages. So as we come to these two Beatitudes this morning, let's jump right in. And remember, I said yesterday that Jesus begins with what I call the conversion Beatitudes. Someone becoming poor in spirit when they've never been that way before. Someone, as a result of being poor in spirit, beginning to mourn over their true condition and their sin when they've never mourned over it before. And now Jesus proceeds to two other Beatitudes, meekness and spiritual hunger. Now we combine hunger and thirst together as one because it's one Beatitude. Meekness and spiritual hunger. These are the first fruits of what a converted heart really begins to look like. The proud become meek and the spiritually indifferent become hungry. These are the first fruits of the spirit in a believer's life. In other words, they're the first things that begin to blossom outwardly in a believer's life. Here's a proud man. He curses. He gets angry at anybody, his wife or children or anybody at work that crosses him. And he meets Christ and suddenly he becomes a meek man. He doesn't have outburst anymore. He works hard at his job and his boss says, who are you and what do you do with that other guy? The proud become meek. And somebody, maybe you were one, want nothing to do with the things of God. And suddenly they come to you maybe and they say, you know, I have, I have Bible questions. Could I ask them to you? And they have this hunger and appetite. It begins like a newborn babe desiring the sincere milk of the world. Something real is happening inside. The proud become meek. The spiritually indifferent become spiritual, spiritually hungry. So, meekness. Blessed are the meek first. How would you define meekness? Go to Webster. You know, you could find out. He'd probably give a good definition. But, you know, you think about meekness. How would you define it for someone? If a neighbor said, you know, I was reading the Sermon on the Mount the other day. What does, it, what does meek mean? Could you define it for them? It's hard to define these things, isn't it? Like, how do you define with someone what it means to be sad? How do you define what it means to be happy or to be depressed? Definitions are hard to come up to describe things that are sometimes indefinable. But you know when you're sad if you can't define it. You know when you're happy if you can't define it well. You know when you're depressed even though you may not be able to define it. You know what you're experiencing. So, 
What is meekness? Well, first of all, let's just say the world doesn't believe in meekness. A meek person in the world is not impressive. They're not out there. They're not movers and shapers of things often. Um, meekness to the world would be what? Would appear to be weakness at times. Uh, the world certainly doesn't believe that the meek inherit anything. The world says it's the proud, it's the pushy, it's the ambitious that get along and get ahead. It's the get out of my way people who get ahead, but not in the kingdom of God. No. Now, a good translation of this word, meek, is gentle. It's, it's strength under control. A gentle person has strength within him. A meek person has strength within him to respond properly, even if someone's being a jerk to them. A patient and contented spirit and heart. Meekness is not weakness or cowardice. It's not just being easygoing or nice to everybody. I mean, that can just be a, somebody who wants to please people. And so meekness is having a true view of yourself that God has changed me and now I have, pov- I have a poorness in spirit that I know everything comes from God. And I know that I grieve over my sin. So I'm, I'm, I don't have to impress anybody. I know what I'm like now. It's a knowledge of yourself that expresses itself in attitude and conduct properly toward others. You know, we've all done it, haven't we? We meet somebody we want to impress or we really respect, and I've been probably guilty over the years as much as anybody, if I'm honest, to drop a name, to say something because you want them to like you. Or you, th- you want them to kind of see how spiritual you are. A meek person doesn't do that. A meek person has a self-controlled heart that doesn't exhibit self in, in self-promotion. And, on the negative side, a meek person doesn't fly off the handle suddenly if somebody offends you. You maintain yourself. And others don't make you choose to do what you should do. You choose to do what you should do regardless of what others are doing or saying. What does meekness look like? Well, meekness is huge in the Bible. Psalm 25, the psalmist says, it's the meek person that the Lord will guide in proper judgment. And it's the meek person he will show his way. Isaiah said, it's the meek person whose joy increases in the Lord. So you need guidance from God and you don't have. You need more joy. Humble yourself before the Lord and take the low, meek position and you'll get guidance and joy together. How, does the, how do the New Testament epistles emphasize meekness? 
Like the Old Testament, the New Testament makes meekness a huge, important commodity. Meekness is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 tells us. Colossians 3 says, We're to be dressed in meekness. Clothe yourselves with these things. Put on meekness and those other fruits of the Spirit. And James says two amazing things about meekness. James says we can only hear and receive the truth truly if we hear it in a spirit of meekness. James also says meekness is seen primarily in our works and our in our um, in our works and not just in our words. James says by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So meekness is seen by others in us. You know, if you're around someone long enough and you see how they really live, you observe if they're a proud person or if they have a spirit of meekness about them, how they conduct themselves. I can be in a restaurant and maybe some guys are, I was on a plane recently coming from somewhere and I was on the, on the aisle and two guys are sitting over here across the aisle from me. They didn't know each other. But from the beginning of the flight, they started talking. One of them did. The, I felt sorry for the other guy. The guy on the aisle started talking. And for two hours, he wanted the other guy to know how great he was, what he had accomplished. And four-letter words were flying. And... And I made a very brilliant deduction. You know, that guy didn't know God. Brilliant, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and so you can observe from people's lives if they're evil or they're good. A good tree can't produce evil fruit. And an evil tree can't produce good fruit. You shall know them by their works. James says our works evidence if we're a meek person if our works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, who's the greatest example of meekness in all of history? Huh? The Lord himself, exactly right. Moses had to write that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth, right? Like he's under inspiration. Lord, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, Moses had to write that. But the meekest man who ever lived was the Lord Jesus himself. And Isaiah and Peter both addressed this. Isaiah said in chapter 53, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus kept his mouth shut when he was oppressed and afflicted because he wasn't going to say anything. He was led like a slam to the slaughter, slaughter, and he was silent. And Peter adds commentary about Christ's sufferings. Peter says, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he did not retaliate. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. It is a mortification of your sin. It is a choice to put your... Sin to death if you are 
longing to say something back, and you just keep your mouth shut. That's godliness. That's victory. That's meekness. So this tells us what true disciples will become like, like their Savior, meek and lowly in heart. Are we? Are we? Are we displaying week in and week out true meekness progressively in every area of our lives? It's so easy. It's beyond easy to come to church and see those we love and be sweet and nice and courteous and respectful. How about your rude neighbor who doesn't like you? How about an extended family member who's never liked your Christianity and they want to get at you somehow? They want to poke you to get you to respond wrong. How about that guy that you never have liked? Or that woman, ladies. You don't, you're not excused here. <clears throat> Are we meek toward those? It's hard to be meek toward. Linda and I have a friend. Her name is Julia Longan. And when I was in high school... I was, I was a jerk, and I was good at it. So the girls' basketball team, they weren't very good. The boys' team was good. And one time they lost real bad. And so I was, I was teasing the girls about it. And so the girls' basketball team, they didn't like me. I'm sure of it. So Linda sees Julia Longan somewhere. I don't remember where it was. They went out to lunch. And Julia's words to her were this. Mac Tomlinson's a preacher? <laughs> she, all she knew was the, the jerk in high school. And so we, Julia and her husband and some friends of ours, go to a classmate's funeral three years ago up in the Texas Panhandle. And so... These ladies, four or five of them, and me, because I'm with Linda, we go to lunch afterward, and here's Julia. And so, you know what I did? Not because I had to, because I wanted to. I said, Julia, I want to apologize to you. And I apologize for being a jerk. And I just said, that's all I was. But God has changed my heart. Meekness. Do we choose to behave ourselves with meekness. When people get angry at you, do you respond back with an attitude? I'll show them how wrong they are. Beloved, our meekness can diffuse an argument. Our meekness can change the climate of an atmosphere of hostility. It can heal a relationship. Well, they did me wrong, and they hadn't apologized yet, so I'm not going to talk to them. Meekness is strength under control. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Well, what's the promise to the meek? It's a big one. Blessed are the meek for what? What does it say? They shall what? Inherit the earth. 
Now, Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 37. Jesus can quote from the Psalms pretty good. Why? Because he wrote them, right? And he, he's always quoting from the Old Testament. Here he quotes Psalm 37, 11, and The meek will inherit the land and have great peace. That's what Psalm 37, 11 says. Jesus takes it and he applies it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, beloved, if you're a Christian, you already are meek. Not perfectly, but you are. And the earth is already yours. All things. Paul said all things are ours. Conrad used to say, you know, I have homes wherever I go. I can get up at 3 in the morning, go to the, go to the refrigerator, get a glass of milk, find some cookies, and go back to bed. Because I have homes everywhere I go. The saints inherit the earth. The kingdom of God is yours. Future glory is yours because you've already inherited it. An heir of God and what? A joint heir with Christ. Beloved, for the meek, the best is yet to come. We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're looking forward to the day when we see him face to face and all tears will be dried up. We're looking to him to the day when there are no more aches and pains, Linda. We're looking to the day when we fully inherit the full kingdom and we stand complete and perfect before our Savior. Oh, the blessedness of the meek one. Secondly, the blessedness of the hungry one. The meek and the hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness. For they and they alone shall be filled. Do you realize the world is on this mad dash to eat the best food and see the best scenery and the greatest sports competitions and the latest movie and the latest fads and the newest gadgets, it's always hungering and thirsting after all the world offers and it never satisfies them. Never. But those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are satisfied now and they will be satisfied eternally. Hunger and thirst, the most basic human instincts, right? Eating, drinking, food and liquids. You know, I don't like apple juice greatly, but if I'm outside working in the yard and it's 95 degrees and I come in and there's only warm water, but there's cold apple juice. I may drink a glass of apple juice because I'm real hungry. I'm real thirsty, right? What is it to hunger? To hunger is to crave food because you're really hungry. What is it to thirst? To crave liquids. Spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst. And here, both the hungry and, thirst and the thirsty are satisfied by one thing only, righteousness. But this isn't just casual hunger and thirst. Even the language of the text, it's acute, extreme hunger and severe thirst.
thirst. It's, it's an insatiable appetite for food and drink that cannot be satisfied with anything else but that. Like a man who hasn't eaten anything for days. Like a person who hasn't had a good drink for three or four days and is very, very thirsty. And we see this spiritual hunger and thirst in the Old Testament saints, don't we? Moses, Exodus 33, the Lord shows him his glory. And what does Moses then pray? Moses says, Lord, I have seen your glory. So therefore, I pray, let me see your glory. Because he's tasted, he wants more. David, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for thee, O God. A heart passion and longing to know God and to do whatever is right in his eyes. Doing what's right in his eyes because it's right, no matter if anybody sees what you've done or not. The one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness desire more than anything else to be right with God and to please Him. More than money, more than human happiness or comforts, more than family, they long to walk in the ways of God. That's why when the sword of the gospel brings a division between father and son or mother and daughter or a man's enemies become uh, a man's family and friends become enemies because of the gospel, the believer will choose Christ. And that's a hard choice. Hungering for good food. The world understands that. We've had good food last night, this morning, and I have a feeling there's some in the kitchen will enjoy good food. The world hungers for good food. But hungering to do what's good, hungering for what's right, pure and holy, the world is not interested. The world has no hunger and thirst for righteousness or for anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Satan hates the name of Jesus. You can talk about God, and that's vague and generic. It may not be too offensive. But you mention the name of Jesus. Everybody but Christians start squirming. Everybody but true Christians will get uncomfortable. They don't want anything to do with it. The Bible, no thanks. Church, I'm not interested. Listen, I was saved when I was seven when I raised my hand at that youth meeting. But don't talk to me about it now. I don't discuss religion or politics. No thanks. But I'm going to heaven. And if you tell me I'm not, I'll knock your teeth out. The world's not interested in righteousness, but to the righteous, to the true disciple, to the true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she hungers and thirsts for more. There is eternal life springing up in the Christian 
because the life of God is in their soul by the Holy Spirit. And that is organic and supernatural and real. And it's always craving more of Christ and God. And your soul is satisfied, but while you're satisfied, you hunger for more. You want more. You can't get enough. That's why you come back regularly when you can here, because you're just getting pure honey out of the rock, the finest of the wheat. Like a deer, Paul said, that I might know him. We want to know him more. We want to see him more. We want to we want to love him more. We want to please him more because we are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. <clears throat> now what's promised to the hungry and thirsty? They shall be filled. Think about it. Four simple, one-syllable words. They shall be filled. What a promise. It means... Every desire you have for Christ and you pursue Him, God's going to fulfill that promise. He's been filling the Christian as long as a Christian has known the Lord. You have been filled over and over and over again and satisfied. The word means satisfied. Satisfied with what? Satisfied with the very thing you hunger for, God Himself. Christ. Holiness, soul satisfaction. The things of the world that we enjoy. And God gives to us freely all things to enjoy that are legitimate, right? But they don't satisfy our souls. You can, you can go to the most beautiful place for a vacation, and it's enjoyable. And God means for us to enjoy it. About two years later, you have some pictures, you have memories that come, but you're not living in the satisfaction of two years ago. With Christ, you are. Oh, Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. Christ keeps satisfying our hearts because he is the bread of life. He's the water of life. He who drinks this water will never truly be thirsty again. The Christian has new, new and right desires, new appetites, new taste buds, new cravings. This is mark of being a disciple. This is the mark of being in the kingdom. The taste for the world, the things of the world, fades away. And the Christian loses all their appetites for the things they used to love. And now, it's the poor in spirit who get in the kingdom and who mourn over their sin and get comforted. It's the meek who inherit the earth. And it's those who hunger and thirst that are satisfied permanently with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all we need is Christ. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is all the world to me. He's the fairest of 10,000. Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit and the mourners and the meek and hungry. 
They all get the blessed blessings of life here and now and eternal blessedness in the future. Beloved, perhaps in the days ahead, immerse yourself in these Beatitudes. Read Luke's version of them. Pray them. Meditate in them. Marinate in them. And let them become more kingdom or realities in your heart. Because you are already those things. This is a picture of you as a Christian. And think of these, these Beatitudes as flowers that have been planted in you as seeds. And they're growing. And they're coming up out of the soil. And then you see beautiful flowers that are blooming more. Or roses that become full bloom and they're fragrant when you smell them. That can be your life spiritually as the Beatitudes make you to have the fragrance and the beauty of Jesus through your life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing reality of the blessedness of being a Christian and what it looks like and what it means, what a Christian is and how they live. Bless your word to our hearts and our lives and let these things blossom and be beautiful that men will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Blessed be your name, Lord. Amen.